Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, it's uh, it's it's always an amazing period of the year. We're we're um, in between uh, Purim and and Pesach, and and uh, this is this is sort of um, very 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 deep for for a lot of reasons because this transition that's going on right now is operating on a number of different levels. Um, w- one way to understand it also is that we're between. Um, we're between sort of like the end of the year and the start of the year. Meaning to say that um, we have sort of two numbering systems that go on in terms of the flow of the year, which is that we're so used to thinking of the beginning of the year as where Rosh Hashanah is, which is the month of Tishrei. Um, And yet, um, we order the months from the beginning of Nisan, and we're about to go into the month of Nisan. Meaning to say that in, in the ordering of the months of the year, Nisan is the first month of the year. So um, that means that Tishrei is actually the seventh month of the year, which sets up one of the great um, sort of like complexities of just Jewish thought and Jewish life, which is that we se- celebrate the new year in the middle of the year, right? Because Rosh Hashanah comes during the seventh month. That's the middle of the year. And, and yet, somehow, this new year that we're about to enter into, which is, which is the month of Nisan, the month of miracles, that's the first of the months, somehow it sort of like, kind of like slides by a little bit, you know? Plus, you should know that there's a debate in the Talmud as to when the world was actually created. So, so was it in the month of Tishrei, or was it in the month of Nisan? Now, we celebrate it in the month of um, Tishrei, Right? And yet, there's a very strong opinion that actually the world was created in the month of Nisan. So it's, it's, um, it's all sort of upside down and mixed up and everything like this. But if we just sort of like tune in for one moment about where we are right now, we're at a fairly epic part of the calendar right now, which is you say, well, wait a second, you know, Purim, I understand Purim is epic, right? But it's not Purim anymore. I understand Pesach is epic. Well, it's not Pesach yet. So what's epic about this time right now? Well, what's epic about it is that we're, there are 12 months in the standard year. If there's a leap year, we, we add an extra month, which would be 13 months. That's not the case this year. So we've got right now a 12-month year, and we're winding down to the last days of the 12th month. Right? So this is really, really the end of the year that's going on right now. And then we're about to leap up and start and start the first month of the new year again. Now, now that's, this will get more interesting in a moment, <laughs> which is, which is, which is just, let's, let's just consider that on, on one level. See, the, the last month of the year, the 12th month of the year, is Adar. And if you think of the, if you think of it like as a ladder, with the first month of the year being the highest point, right? That would be Nisan, right? That's where we're about to get to, but we're not there yet. Um, we're all the way on the bottom. Now, everybody knows that each month of the year, there's 12 months of the year. Each month of the year has a different permutation of the Yudke Vavke, of Hashem's divine, most divine name assigned to it, which means you have got 12 different permutations once for each of, one for each of the months. 
So that means that there has to be one of the 12 months, which will be just the straight spelling of Hashem's name. In other words, it would be Yud and He and Vav and He. And that would be the permutation, so to speak. In other words, the permutation is it's just a straight spelling, right? Um, so that is the month of Nisan, which is the month of miracles, which when you understand that there's no um, permutation within the name of Hashem, that it's the month of straight clarity and revelation. And in fact, what is a miracle if not the open revelation of Hashem's presence, right? Like when you see a miracle, like the whole point of a miracle is, oh yeah, there's a God and he's right here and he's doing everything, right? So it would make sense that the month of miracles, remember the word for miracles in Torah is nes, and the name of this month of that's coming up is Nisan. In other words, it, it contains the word Nes in it, miracles. So it makes sense that the, the, the permutation would just be the straight name of Hashem, right? So that's total clarity. That's at the top. But now again, if you think of it as just sort of like a ladder, Adar would all the way be on the bottom. That would mean that if Nisan represents total life, Adar would be the month that's the furthest place from the light, which would be a month of darkness, right? And in fact, interestingly, um, in terms of the zodiac, um, the Torah zodiac, right? Like even we have this notion of, of like Pisces, right? That that's the fish is the month of Adar, which is, which is the realm of the concealed. The ocean is the realm of the concealed, right? Because we, you know, they say that the the you know, when you get super deep down below, there's all sorts of creatures that we haven't that we haven't discovered yet. Probably, I mean, this is me just guessing, but probably, well, I wouldn't even venture a number, but there's a lot of, of species down way below that. And why, why haven't we found them? Because as you get further and further down, the depths, the weight of the water on anyone who would try to go down there actually becomes crushing. So it's not easy to get down there. And they found like incredible stuff in terms of landscaping, like volcanoes and canyons and like crazy landscape on the, toward the bottom of the ocean, you know? Anyway, so again, the idea is that um, astrologically, Adar is, 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 is the fish, but it means the realm of the concealed, right? Which makes sense because it's the furthest month from... Nisan, which is the month of light and miracles and open revelation. Okay, now, now interestingly, the month, there's also 12 tribes, and each of the month has a tribe that is associated with it. So let's contrast Nisan and Adar for a moment. Who is the tribe of Nisan, which is open revelation? Well, you would say, well, what, what, if we're talking about tribes, we're talking about human beings. So what human being would most represent open revelation of Hashem? Mashiach, right? So it would be the tribe of Mashiach would be Nisan. And in fact, it's the tribe of Yehuda. It's Shevet Yehuda. And who led the march through the desert when the Jews were encamped in the desert as they're traveling toward Israel? Yehuda led it. And where does kingship um, exist among the Jewish people? In Yehuda. So that's the scepter of, of Yehuda. So he is the month of Nisan. It, it makes sense, yeah? By the way, 
I'll tell you something interesting. While we're talking about Mashiach and Yehuda and, and, and things like this, um, uh, I was like surprised to learn this. I was just, I found it very, very interesting. Um, uh, not so long ago, I, I learned it in the Handbook of Jewish Thought. By the way, if you want a wonderful book, great, great book, uh, I really recommend it. It's called The Handbook of Jewish Thought by Rabbi Ari Kaplan, especially Volume 1. And it just goes paragraph by paragraph, short paragraphs, through just what official Judaism is. It's like it really is amazing, but it covers, it covers a lot. It's an, I've given classes on it. In fact, we learned it Shabbos morning, and we did a little bit uh, at a time, and it took us, I don't know, it took us a good five, six, seven years to get through and I'd love to do it again, actually. I think it would be really fun to do because just so you, you find out all sorts of interesting things and it's very clearly presented. And then just it's just great to get just for the footnotes because in Rabbi Kaplan's amazing fashion, he'll make a simple statement and then he'll footnote it and you'll see 10 incredibly esoteric, amazing authoritative texts quoted for each one of his thoughts. So it's, it's really, it's, it's quite reliable. Anyway. In this handbook of Jewish thought, he, um, he, he explains something that, 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 that might sound surprising, but it, it's interesting that there's a halakhic basis to this. We have this whole idea that Eliyahu, the prophet, announces the arrival of Mashiach. Right? So where does that come from? It sounds like, well, maybe that's just like a gadita or, or a medrash or something like that. Like, Eliyahu comes, and then Mashiach comes, and it's like, all oh, good, I don't necessarily understand it, but... It's all good. Why, why, someone's going to announce him. Why shouldn't it be Eliyahu, right? You know, that's, I think, most, uh, what most people make of it, and they don't go further. But here's the idea. Um, a king has to be appointed by a prophet. Okay? So, Mashiach, you see, like, in like Chabad circles, you hear them say, Melech Mashiach, right? King Mashiach, right? But that's not just a covet. They're not just trying to give honor to Mashiach by saying, Melech HaMashiach, King Mashiach. Actually, in, in Jewish law, in Jewish thought, it will, the, the Mashiach will actually be a king of Israel, formally a king. That's why he has to be descended from King David, from the tribe of Yehuda. In other words, that's, his, that's what his lineage has to be, and he has to actually be a king of Israel. Now, who's going to make him a king? A prophet has to make him a king, but we don't have any prophets, right? So who's going to be the prophet who makes him a king? And the answer is Eliyahu. So there's, in other words, it's not just Eliyahu announces Mashiach. There's actually a halachic um, dynamic going on in terms of it. Okay. So anyway, just to get back to it, we're contrasting two things right now. The month of Nisan, which is like at the top, that's the Yudke Vavke, that's, that's openly revealed miracles and everything like that, and the tribe of Yehuda, which makes, which makes sense, right? Then all the way on the bottom, we have Adar, which is concealment, right? That's like the underwater realm, if you will. You, you don't know what's going on there. That's Adar. And you have um, uh, Naphtali, the tribe of Naphtali, which I saw Rabbi Wilson Darshan's as nafalti, which means I fell. Because when Hashem is concealed in the darkness, it's very easy to get tripped up and to fall, so to speak. Not just physically, but in terms of, you know, in terms of our own uh, mistakes in life. 
when you don't have clarity, when you don't have the open light, so to speak, it gets confusing. Life becomes confusing and it's easy to fall. Right? So that's naftali, which is nafalti, I fell. Right? Now, with these two things in mind, let's now revisit the holidays that house, um, that are housed by these two months. So Pesach is Nisan. Right? Now that makes perfect sense because what's, what's going on in Pesach? Openly revealed miracles. Right? Of course it's Nisan. Where else would it be? It couldn't be anywhere else in the calendar once you understand the personality of the months. Right? So it's, that's Pesach. Right? But now even to me anyway, because that sounds very obvious, right? But even more intriguing is the placement of Purim. Because where, what is Purim all about? Purim is, I'm going to be destroyed. And I don't see God's hand at all. He's totally concealed. Remember, in Megillus Esther, which is the account of Purim, Hashem's name isn't mentioned once. We're talking about the realm of concealment. So where would Purim be situated on the calendar? Adar, right? The furthest place from the light. Right? Okay. So now, now listen to the genius of the Torah calendar, what Hashem made. All right? This is just an introduction to this next thought. Okay? Which is that on the one hand, it's absolutely true. At the top of the ladder, we have the first month, which is Nisan, which is Yehuda, which is Mashiach, which is Yudke Vavke which is the month of miracles and light and all the rest. On the bottom, we have Adar, which is concealment. It's like the realm underwater. You can't even see it. It's Purim. It's where is God? There's no mention of God in the Megillah. It's Nafalti. It's all these things, right? I fell. But Adar goes right into Nisan. They're actually connected. It's not the latter construct. I mean, for, you know, we have different paradigms. As you learn, you need different paradigms to understand different approaches to different thoughts. So in understanding the distance, the, the concealment and the darkness of the month of Adar, it helps to think of it in terms of a ladder. They're furthest away from each other. But in terms of our lives and the construction of this world itself, now we have to understand it as a spiral. And we have to understand that all of a sudden, like, Adar, which is the darkest month, goes right into Nisan, which is the most revealed month. <coughs> Bless you. So we have a question. It's a halakha question. Uh, the the Gomorrah addresses it in, in, in Mesecta Megillah. Which is, what about when you have a month which has two Adars? Where does Purim fall? So maybe, like you'd say, I mean, you know, philosophically you could argue either way. You could say, well, it should be the first month because we have a, we have a notion that you have to run to do a mitzvah, right? And so let's celebrate Purim as soon as we can. Let's make it in the first month, right? But the answer, intriguingly, is... If there are two months of Adar, Purim is celebrated in the second month. And why is Purim celebrated in the second month? 
The Gemara says it very clearly. In order to link Purim to Pesach, the two salvations have to be linked together. And of course we know famously there's exactly 30 days between Purim and Pesach. And so Hashem existing, right, in, in this place of concealment, which is Purim, and the whole point of Purim is to show us that even though we thought everything was concealed, and even though Hashem's name isn't mentioned in the Megillah, and we can't see Him, and it feels like we're about to be destroyed, He's there 100%. He's there 100% every single moment. So we go from that consciousness as we sort of like dig down deeper, 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 deeper into the darkness, we go from that consciousness that even here it's light, and then all of a sudden, like the curtain swings open, and the light of Nisan rushes in, and we see open revelation. Now in this way, the Hebrew calendar parallels the history of humanity. Because the end of days which would correlate with the month of Adar, because that's the end of the calendar, right? It's like there's no more room yet. You hit the end, right? The end of days is a time of total confusion. It's like Adar. It's like, where is God? What's going on? You know, like Rebbe Nachman said, um, I want you to know, I see a time of great atheism coming onto the world. It's like going to be like a flood of atheism coming onto the world. And he says, I'm telling you this now so that you should be comforted when it comes to know that I said it was coming. And we see it. We're living in the thick of it right now. In the, in the thick of it. Right? So that's, that's like Adar, so to speak. In other words, if you, if you look at the calendar from Nisan, right? Nisan would represent creation, right? And what did we say? We said there's an opinion in the Gemara that absolutely the world was created, in fact, in Nisan. So Nisan would represent the beginning of creation. And Adar would represent the end of days, right? So, so what's so intriguing about that is, besides the fact that it's an exact parallel, but beyond that, what's so intriguing? Because Adar then turns back into Nisan. Meaning at the end of days, then morphs or evolves, if you will, into Mashiach. Into back into this open revelation of godliness. In other words, it doesn't just, just you know, there's a, there's a word, it's one of my favorite words, just because you never hear it used, and also just because it's weird sounding. An asymptote. Do, do you know? Do you guys know what that is? So it's like, it's also kind of a cool concept. When you've got, it's it's from I learned it in high school. It's in from geometry. When you've got the x and the y axis, there's certain, um, I don't know what you would call them, certain curves. I guess I'm sure there's a more technical word than that, which um, go down toward they approach the axis. Would that be what is that? Is that the x-axis? Okay. There we go. And it goes ever, ever, ever closer to hitting the axis, but it never hits the axis. Right? So it like it ever, 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 ever closer, but it never will ever hit it. Okay? So 
So we, we I, I don't know why I brought that up. Yeah, right. So yeah, it looks like it's, it really looks like it's getting to the end. It looks like it's absolutely getting to the end. But it, but it, but it doesn't happen, you know? Now listen to this, listen to this. I once heard Reb Shlomo tell this joke, okay, and then he laughed really hard after. He would laugh a lot, you know, he, he, he really was amazing to be around, so, so um, in so many ways. But, but here's a joke that he told. He said that someone, um, you know, someone asked, uh, how long is it from Minsk to Pinsk, right? So the guy says, um, you know, 30 days. Right? And he says, okay, how long is it from Pinsk to Minsk? He says, 30 days. So he goes, oh, okay. He says, because, you know, from Purim to Pesach, it's 30 days. But from Pesach to Purim, it's 11 months. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I thought a lot about that joke. Because I thought to myself, like, why, 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 first of all, why did Reb Shlomo love that joke so much? You know, why did he think it was so funny? And was there something to it beyond just the joke itself, you know? So this is just me talking, but I'll tell you my own analysis of that joke, because I really did think about it. You see, it hit me like this, which is, you know something? In order to do something, right, that's so to, so to speak, Minsk to Pinsk, right? In order to do something, that takes a certain amount of time, right? But in order to undo something, that can take much, much longer. Right? So it's not just, oh, 30, 30 days the other way. Ah, that's Pesach to Purim. That's 11 months around. You know? And that's, 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 that's a strong thought. And, and I'll tell you something along those lines. There are a catalog, an encyclopedia of beautiful, beautiful thoughts that are said on the breaking of the glass under the chuppah, right? But there's actually, as far as I know, an official answer, an official drusha for why we break the glass under the, under the chuppah. And it's, you know, it's almost, I've never been to a chuppah where it's been said, okay? And, and, and it goes like this, that just like if you break a glass, you can't put it back together again, right? Or it's very hard. If you say certain words, you can't get them back in your mouth. And so for a husband and a wife, especially a husband and a, and a wife who are s- starting a new thing together, they have to be careful what they say to each other, right? So that's, you know, that's like, okay, Minsk to Pinsk, that's 30 days, but Pinsk to Minsk, something else. To undo something, something else, you know? So, so now, let's go a little bit further. I have a question, and I don't think I have an answer, but 
I, it's worth just maybe hearing the question and maybe you can come up with your own answer. Which is, which is that I was struck by the fact that in, in Shul, remember the last Shabbos of every month is called Shabbos Mavorachim, and we, 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 we bless the new month that's about to come. Okay? So now, interestingly, we do this every single month of the year with one exception. In Elul, right, which is right before Rosh Hashanah, which is right before Tishrei, where we celebrate, excuse me, where we celebrate the new year, we don't bless the month that's about to happen. So there are different explanations given for that. So here's how I understand it. The way I understand it is that basically a new mazel is coming into the world, right? Because Rosh Hashanah, it's like there are all sorts of new decrees happening for a person's life. That's why we, you know, we, we like, Elul is such an intense month, like in the, in the Sephardic tradition, they're, they're, they're doing slichas from the beginning of the month, you know, getting up like at, you know, 4 a.m., 5 a.m., whatever it is, just to say all these prayers. And there's all sorts of preparation that's going on in, in Elul um, for, for Rosh Hashanah, for this momentous occasion. And so, it's not so simple just to sort of like, to say, okay, so, so, so I'm blessing the new month. In other, words, in other words, a new light comes down on Rosh Hashanah. And it sort of like channels, it flows through the year. But then it stops, so to speak, in, in, at the end of Elul. And then a new light comes down. And so the idea that you're not just sort of like, escorting that light, you know, blessing that light as it travels to the next month, you know, you, you don't do it because a new light is coming, basically, between Elul and, and, uh, and Tishrei. But what about, so I was very struck in Shul that here we are in the 12th month and we're about to go into the first month and there we were benching the new month. You know, so... Maybe, like, I would, if you were to ask me, okay, one month out of the year, we're not going to bless the new month. I think maybe I would have picked Adar not to do it. Right? So there's a continuity there, which is very, very intriguing. And I'm not really prepared to discuss it further than that. (laughs) But I want to. (laughs) I want to. I was going to give an answer, but then I looked up in the book and I was like, oh, no, that's not the answer. <laughs> so maybe, maybe something to think about. Maybe, maybe something to think about, you know? Um, so, so let's go further. Uh, you know, in uh, the, the, the Parsha, the Parsha that we just read, well, let's, let's, continue, uh, let's continue with this connection between, between Adar and Nisan. Okay, because now you see something that I think is very metaphysical and very very cool, which is what happened on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first day of the first month. The answer is is that the Mishkan, the Tabernacle in the desert, was built. It was it was finished. It was dedicated. Okay, it was all done, and it says very appropriately, especially if you have in mind the opinion in the Gemara that the world actually was created on the first day of Nisan. It says that 
that the um, tabernacle in the desert was like a microcosm of the entire world and that God was as happy when the Mishkan was dedicated on the first day of Nisan as he was when he created the entire world. Right? So here you have like, like a, a, world within, a world within the world. Okay? Now, interestingly, that means that these days... Now, what happened before they um, put up the, the, the Mishkan? So, for seven days leading up to it, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, like it was all finished, he put up the Mishkan. Remember, it was something that you could put up and take down. He put up the Mishkan, and then he took a death. And then the next day, he put the whole thing up again, and then he took it down. And then he, he did this leading up to the eighth day, when they put it up, and then it was officially inaugurated, and that was it. All right? Now listen to this. What did we just say? We just said that the Mishkan was a microcosm of the whole world, right? So that means that that's the first day of Adar. Now what about the, I'm sorry, the first day of Nisan. What about the last days of Adar? What was going on in the last days of Adar? This miniature world was being put up and taken down. Put up and taken down. And what does it say in the Midrash about the creation of the world? That before God created the world, he made and destroyed many worlds. Right? So you see this exact parallel between the creation of the world, right? That God destroyed many worlds before he made this world. In fact, there's a Torah opinion. I know the Teferis Yisrael, who was one of the great commentary, commentators on the Mishnah in the 1800s, when they started discovering dinosaur bones, which some people react to as, oh no, like they're having a crisis about Torah and everything like that. He was so happy when they found dinosaur bones, right? He was one of the greatest rabbis of the age. He said, we've been saying that God created and destroyed many worlds before this one. Here we have actual evidence. Right? That's how one of, if you want to know what, what a great Torah mind understood that when it was, you know, headline news, and it was like a brand new discovery, that's how he understood it. Just strike it. So this idea of many worlds being destroyed before this world and being made. And uh, you see, where do they learn that from? Where does the Medrash learn that from? So when we say Kiddush, Friday night, we begin with Vayichulu, right? Right? Vayichulu means to complete. Right? And it's, it's talking about the seventh day of creation that God completed creation, right? But the Medrash says that Vayichulu is related to a word which means to destroy. Okay? So that's where they learn out the hint that many worlds were destroyed before this one was finished. So, you know, we're about to begin we're about to begin a like a whole new like shift in the calendar right now. And if we're very sensitive, we'll feel it as a shift in our lives as well. 
or to be open to it as well. And so one thing that we have to bear in mind on a very practical level, right? Let's talk about it now in the here and now in terms of how we approach our days, right? It says all beginnings are difficult, right? And everyone has to know that, you know, because we, we come from... See, Rabbi Green actually had a very interesting insight um, into uh, the, zeit, the zeitgeist of, uh, say, American popular culture. And it's something that I, I never would have thought of, you know. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's a very sharp observation. If you, you know, especially today, and there are other reasons to explain this, but, but you know, if you look at, if you look at like um, box office, movie box office, the, the dominant movies uh, of the day, I'm generalizing, but it's, it's, it's accurate, are these superhero movies, right? So, so, okay, so why are they so popular? You can say it's just societal stuff, but there, there are also other more technical reasons. Um, special effects have caught up in a way that now these stories can be told in a compelling way. That was never the case before. So, you know, there, 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 there are other reasons for it, you know, more meat and potato reasons for it. But in terms of the, the zeitgeist, and I used to read comic books a lot growing up and stuff like that, the um, the superhero story is like let's talk about Spider-Man because he's as as iconic as as it gets. He gets bitten by a radioactive spider, and then boom, he's a superhero. In other words, that was easy, <laughs> right? You don't you don't see him like sweating his way through the taking the LSATs, you know? It's like you know, man. Okay, here's my plan. First, I'm going to like be like I'm going to get on law review. Then I'm going to work out. You know, I'm going to you know whatever. Travel to Tibet, and find some karate master, and train for thirty years with him. Then you, you know, it's like he got bitten by a spider. Done. No work. Work free. That's America. That's America. It's the work free road to superhero done. And so the, 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 this teaching that all beginnings are difficult, and I heard a rabbi explain, I don't, know, I don't know, remember who said it, but I thought it was very good. Beginnings is said in the plural. All beginnings are, and, and because why? Because a lot of times you have to try several times before you get it right. In other words, it's not, Oh, in this category called beginnings, this category of beginnings is difficult. No, a deeper insight. Meaning if you just want to accomplish one thing, it requires oftentimes many beginnings. You have to try and then try again and then try again and then try again and then try again. And then you can get the enterprise off the ground. Right? And so the idea is if we want to go maybe even a, a, a half a step deeper, that the idea that this world was created after other worlds were made and destroyed, it's almost as though that was embedded into this world, into the nature of this world, that multiple efforts are required. Right? And... Uh, 
you know, God didn't make it and then destroy it because God is like, you know, has to do several drafts before he gets it right. That's not it. It's not God was, you know, fine-tuning creation. You know, that that's not it. So whenever you see something like that, it's by design and it's with complete intention. Right? See, I think that, um, you know, it, 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 this hit me like, like as a big thought, and I don't know if you'll hear it as one, because um, it might just sound so obvious. But it didn't seem obvious to me. Which is that, you know, there are different ways to teach Torah, I think. And, and one way, and, and I think for better or for worse, it's probably the dominant way that most people approach it is this is what you got to do do it and you're not doing it what's your problem <laughs> you know like you know like like get it together cuz this is what it is and then there's another approach which is that you know what being a human being is exceedingly difficult <laughs> Just like getting through a day is really hard. And I'm trying to do my best. And this isn't, nothing is, forget about this isn't easy. Nothing is easy. Nothing is easy for me. And then you can teach Torah from from that perspective, which is that nothing is easy. But this is the best thing in the world, and this is what we have to strive for. And this is what God wants, even. And, and anything you're doing is, like, fantastic if it's better than what you were doing before. And let's celebrate that, and let's just all just try our hardest, and, then, and, and, and that's what it is. And, and, and it seems to me like, how, how can it be any other way? You know what I mean? Especially in our generation. I mean, you talk about the month of Adar. Historically speaking, we're in, we're in Adar. This is as Adar as it gets. I mean, maybe it'll... I mean, when you start to study like the stuff that's going on in terms of virtual reality and all the rest, I mean, it, this is going to be considered a total picnic. They're going to look back on this as Nissan. Right? Because when you talk about, you know, holograms, right? And then, like, we're going to be, like, right now, they've got these um, virtual reality goggles that, 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 that they're developing. Um, someone who I know just got, got a chance to experience it. And he said that he looked in it, and he was floating in outer space. And he looked around, 360, he was in outer space. Then he, it changed, and he was in the middle of Cirque du Soleil, a circus. But he was in the middle of a circus that was going around 360 around him. So that's, they had that now. It hasn't been released yet. But it's, we are very much on the verge of 
not knowing what's real and what's imaginary anymore. And, you know, you, they, they talk about people, um, talk about the effect of, you know, the internet and Facebook and things like this, and they say, well, people are increasingly staying home. You know, they're not interacting with people as much. Really, their interactions are becoming, you know, more just with a computer screen and everything like that, more remote. All right, do you know what that means? That means that we're being socialized we're being socialized as a world to be more and more comfortable by being by ourselves. Now, all of a sudden, when you can put on your virtual reality goggles, and now you can be by yourself, literally in your own world, wow, that transition seems really effortless, doesn't it? And then someone's going to say to you, um, you know, my dad, I've told you many times, Oliver Shalom, you should rest in peace. He was a psychologist for, you know, 50 years. And he, he, he brought me up on certain psychiatric principles in terms of, like, just things that he would tell his, his patients. And we grew up just hearing these things, like, like the air we breathe, we'd hear certain principles. One of the principles that he would use is, is, is that... You don't deal, like when you're talking to someone who needs help, you don't deal with the truth. You deal with their perception of the truth. In other words, you don't, like someone tells you, you know, I'm being followed by, you know, elephants. You don't say, um, you're not being followed by elephants. You know, you're, you're, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, you, you say, well, um, I don't know what you would ask. How many elephants? <laughs> right? You know, yeah. Where are they? Are they in the room now? Right? Like, you want to get to their perception of, because whether it's true to you, whether it's true in terms of objective reality is not the point. The point is it's true to them and they're living with that and they're suffering from it. That, that, that's the point. So now, what I'm trying to tell you is that we're, we're now going to get to a point where the subjective reality, in terms of virtual reality, is going to become so intense that the whole discussion of truth is going to become really complex, really complex. Because someone's going to say, well, it's totally, what do you mean it's not true? Uh, what do you mean I'm not in the middle of a circus right now? And they duck because a trapeze artist is flying over their head. <laughs> what, what are you telling me? So, so Mashiach better come fast. <laughs> Because I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I, really, honestly, I don't. Really, I'm telling you that, that, that as, as much as I believe in my heart that right now this is like Adar, meaning to say this is darkness and we're at the end, as much as I believe that, when I look at societally in terms of, you know, 
the f futurology, if that's a word, what, how futurists describe what is down the pike and what's already here. I mean, like I said, my, my friend put those glasses on. He described it to me. It's here already. Okay? Um, like, this right now is absolutely going to be considered the Stone Ages that we're in right now. This is going to be the Stone Ages, you know, from that generation's point of view. You know, like, like people who are in the younger generation right now <clears throat> look at their parents, grandparents, <laughs> you didn't grow up with the internet, you didn't even have cell phones, like, ah, it's hilarious. Do you know what your children and grandchildren are going to think of you? I mean, you're going to be a bigger joke than we are. So, so, so yeah, I, 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 it's all very, very humbling. It's all very, very humbling. The, the, the whole, the whole thing is humbling. And, um, and I'll just end just with, with something that it's, I just think it's important to hear. Which is that it's, it's so easy to um, just exist in a realm of ideas. And, you know, the last few talks I've been mentioning this, and I, I, I do think it's an important idea, and I just really want you to really get it into your bones. Which is that for most people, even most quote-unquote religious people, God is just an idea. It's just like, yeah, I, I, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a God, and He made the world, and whatever it is, and, but it's just an idea, like the idea that they exist within godliness, that God is actually the definition of reality. That th this, even for quote unquote people who are religious, they haven't made that breakthrough, and that really is the breakthrough that a person has to make. If you want to, so to speak, you know, get real, you know what I mean? And really be in the consciousness of what we talk about in terms of Torah and Judaism. That is the consciousness, right? That's what we call dveikaskite. That's called cleaving. That's, 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 that, that's where you want to be. That's where you want to exist if you're taking this path seriously. And within that, we also have to understand an, an, an equally big or maybe even bigger thought, which is that we exist amidst exquisite structure. And it's so easy to think because just life goes by so fast and there's so many things I know and don't know and things seem so quote-unquote random and all the rest and mysterious and who even knows and does anyone even know and everything like that. Well, you know what? Maybe nobody knows, and probably nobody knows. But that doesn't mean that the structure of the universe doesn't actually exist 1,000% that we live in. We live in an exceedingly structured environment. And there's a creator to that structure. It didn't just arrive whole cloth on its own. It was created. It, it exists as a creation. It may have evolved, but it exists as a structure. Meaning to say, 
if you look at all the trillions of heavenly bodies, they all have a very exact choreography. Right? Why don't they all crash into each other? I mean, you see some do, but not like the, the, the actual cast of characters, so to speak, maintains a very exact gravitational and all the rest, you know, travel pattern. And then you go down further and you look at the exact composition of, of air and know that if there was like a little less oxygen, they say everyone would suffocate in the world. And if there was a little bit more, if you lit a match, the entire world would catch on fire. Right? I heard them say that, I, I don't know if this is true, but I, I, I believe it, that if the sun were just a little closer to the earth, we'd all burn up. And if it was a little further away, we'd all freeze. Right? And then you talk about DNA, like an extra Y chromosome or an extra X chromosome. Can fundamentally changes absolutely everything about how a person looks or acts or is. The tiniest change. And then you get to the subatomic level, where literally one more proton or neutron or electron or whatever it is completely changes the thing and it becomes something else. A completely different element. So we see from the planets all the way down to the subatomic level, certainly in terms of our own composition, the air and our DNA, Everything is exceedingly exact. There's a reality to this world, is what I'm trying to say. And the Torah is the blueprint of that reality. And so even if the world does evolve into this place where you have no idea what's real, what's not real, we will always know what's real. We will never not know what's real. And we have to live and embrace that reality in our lives right now. Because there are domino effects that come from embracing the truth. And it influences actually how the future unfolds. Okay. Yeah.